The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Today's sermon text is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this message, I aim to answer four questions from our text. Number one, if there is a creator God who is self-sufficient, meaning he doesn't need anybody, he's self-sufficient, doesn't need anybody, then why is there anybody else? What are all of us created beings for, if we're not needed? Question number two, what is Jesus' name? Of course, Jesus' name is Jesus, but he also has another overarching name. Number three, third question, and if his name is what this text tells us what it is, well, so what? And question number four, what's the good news in all this? My aims in this message are to help your hearts resonate with the lyrics that you just heard sung, such as, Jesus is my soul's rest. Is it? He's my journey's end. Is it? He erased my sin. You believe that? That's a good place for some head nodding and some amens and... He is perfect holiness revealed. How does that land on you? It just goes in one ear and out the other. His name is the dearest name. We just heard that song. Is it? Another aim that I have in this message is to help you tune your hearts for singing the two songs that Dan is going to lead us in in just a couple of minutes. To state it differently... My aim this morning is to spread in you and me a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, including us and our children and the children who sang in this choir and our children's children, through His incomparable Son, Jesus Christ, the one with the unparalleled name. Full disclosure, earlier this week, I sat at my desk preparing this message silently weeping with the thought that the greatest person ever to live gives me the unspeakable privilege this morning of being a little pointer to him. A little sign along the side of the road pointing to the greatest sweetest, most glorious one. So, let's dive in to our text. A single verse that was read to you. The main point of last week's sermon was to have the mind of Christ in humble service to others. This week, 
we see for Jesus and for us going low in humility leads to exaltation. This going low in humility involves suffering. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. See the order of things, the sequence? The exaltation comes in and through because of the suffering. That was Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul's letter to these Philippian people encourages them to live as citizens of a heavenly colony which will require of them humility in two ways which we're going to see in this text. So here we may ask my first of the four questions, a very profound one. If there is a God who is self-sufficient, meaning He doesn't need anything or anyone, why is there anything or anyone? This morning we have the privilege of unpacking a text that reveals the ultimate reason why everything in the universe exists. The purpose of everything and everyone including each of you and me. Here's the answer. God is jazzed about the supremely valuable. He loves to supremely value the supremely valuable. That which is more majestic than anything or anyone else in existence. And what is so supremely valuable? He is. He values that which is most valuable, which is Him. The ultimate purpose of God in creating everything is to glorify God in everything. The ultimate purpose of everything is to glorify God. The glory of God is where this text is headed. It's where the whole book of Philippians is headed. It's where the whole Bible is headed. It's where history is headed. And it's where your future and mine are headed to the glory of God. When verse 11, you can look at it, says, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's where it's headed. Jesus Christ is Lord, revealing the glory of God. That's what the universe does, reveals the glory of God. That's Jesus' ultimate purpose. Now, some might protest, thinking that self-glorification sounds like God is a big, fat, selfish pig. He's arrogant, pompous. Well, that would be true if it were inflated, but it isn't. And he's not selfish about it. He's selfless. He enriches us with his glory. Later in this same letter to the Philippians, Paul will say to his friends in 3.8, Indeed, I count everything, everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, garbage, trash, refuse. Add it all up. It's all nothing compared to gaining Christ and being found in Him. 
Paul thinks Jesus Christ is worth more than everything else combined. Now, why does the Father exalt Jesus in this passage? He says, God has exalted him, bestowed on him a name that's above every name. Why? Why? Well, in this passage, the clear reason is Jesus' voluntary humility. He humbled himself. That's what the very first word of the verse 9 means, therefore. The therefore points back to the last two weeks of sermons, the first eight verses of Philippians chapter 2, in which Jesus does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he empties himself, humbles himself, takes on the form of a servant, and is obedient even to the point of an ignominious death. The point of all the humility and the suffering in the previous sermons is the exaltation in this sermon. That's where that humiliation is headed. That's what the therefore in verse 9 means. And this connection between his humility and his suffering and his glory, his exaltation, is echoed in other passages. Listen to Hebrews 2.9. Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Don't overlook the word because there. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me, Jesus is talking, for this reason, what reason? For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. The word therefore is pivotal in our text today. It links everything in verses 9 through 11 to the previous verses. Father's exaltation of Jesus directly corresponds to his perfect obedience, especially in verses 4 through 8. The obedience of Jesus and the exaltation by the Father are causally and inseparably linked. Jesus' humiliation is the grounds for his exaltation. His work on the cross is causal. Causes the Father to exalt him. The therefore, at the beginning of verse 9, flows out of the deadly cross. And the cross isn't the only place where Jesus displays humility. Let me ask you to pay attention to his humble submission to the Father in the Gospel of John. I'm just going to read several verses from the Gospel of John. 519. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. 5.41, I do not receive glory from people. I have come in my Father's name. 638, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is one who has equality with God, and he's not grasping at it. He's letting it go. 716, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. 728, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord, of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, 
for I come from him. And he sent me. 8.28 I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father instructed me. 12.49 For I have not spoken on my own authority but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. 14.10 Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority but the Father who dwells in me does his works. This is stunning humility. Do you see it? The one who is equal with God is submissive. Not my will. Not my words. I'm stunned. Are you stunned? Sadly, it's our natural inclination to exalt anything but God or to exalt God because He's merely the pathway to something else we want. God is the stepping stone to health. God is the way to wealth. He's the way to status. He's the way to, I I, want to worship Him. I want to pray to Him because I want the comfort that He can deliver. I don't want Him. I want the comfort that He can bring to my doorstep. I want praise of men. I want reunion with my loved ones who are in heaven. I want to be entertained and God can make sure that I have all the right DVDs on my shelf by my TV. I worship God because I want influence, meaning I want control. We want to be in charge of our lives. It's possible to value God only insofar as He's a stepping stone to something else. So I ask, Is the weighty, majestic, infinitely superior worth of God the pinnacle of our desires this morning? Do we sing the well-known Fernando Ortega song, In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Pastor Stephen, who's preaching in Georgia this morning, last week, preached about the crucial role of unity. Now, can you see that in our text, unity is served by humility? How are we going to achieve unity? Humility is key. It's not achieved by cockiness or arrogance or pride or stubbornness. In his recent recent preaching, Pastor Stephen drew our attention to the humility of Jesus, who did not grasp at his divine position, his privileges, his prerogatives but instead emptied himself, taking on mortal human form, becoming obedient as a servant, even to the point of disgraceful and obscene naked crucifixion on a plank. You ever imagine putting yourself in Jesus' shoes? His humble service there included humiliation and shame, mockery, mistreatment, dressing him up as royalty, then stripping him naked in public. It included physical torture, sharp, protracted, extended pain without relief, punching, beard pulling, beatings, thorns, nails, slivers, thirst. 
It included emotional torment, deprivation. He was deprived of water. He was deprived of free motion. Most of you, these few minutes into this sermon, have already adjusted your position. You've shifted in your chair. Some of you who had your arm on the back of a chair have taken it down. Some of you have had it down, put it up. You, you moved around. You've scratched your nose. He can't do any of those things for hours. He can't swat the flies away from the blood on his face. He gets a cramp. He can't massage it. He can't move. He's deprived of free motion. He can't rub a sore. can't wipe his eyes. He can't visit the necessary room. His suffering included spiritual rejection and abandonment by his disciples, by his silent mother, by his divine father. It included punitive chastisement, bruising and crushing. Not accidental. He didn't get bumped. They're going after him on account of sins he did not commit. Taking on guilt for the sins of others. Now when I was in sixth grade, any sixth graders in here? A few sixth graders, any over here? Sixth graders? Any of the others of you ever been in sixth grade? Any of you ever been in sixth grade? I like to say that I was in sixth grade for eight years. <laughs> Seven as the teacher. When I was in sixth grade, there was a new student who came to our school, and he was, well, weird. He was not sociable, frankly. And on the playground, I tried to welcome him one day, so I, I tossed him a ball and said, you want to play catch? And he turned and walked off with my ball. <laughs> Eventually, some of the other boys began to tease him because he was weird. I didn't participate in the teasing. But one of the teachers got wind of the teasing and hauled all of us boys off the playground into a classroom during recess while the girls were outside playing. And there within the four walls of our incarceration, the teacher wrote a sentence on the chalkboard and each of us was required to hand copy it on paper. Five hundred times. Quote, I will no more in the future chastise, ridicule, or in any way make fun of my fellow classmates while on the playground. That required every morning recess, every noon recess, every afternoon recess for two whole weeks. That's why I can remember that sentence. I was sentenced, all right. My point in telling the story is I was not one of the mockers. But I got the punishment, the injustice. On the cross, the sinless lover of your soul that we just sang about endured the grossest injustice ever endured by anyone ever. Now we've observed in verse 9 that God 
therefore highly exalted him. Don't we also? Don't you love him? Now, exalted there can be taken as super exalted. He was exalted above the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He was exalted above Moses and the prophets and the angels. As written in Hebrews, he's exalted above all earthly rulers and powers. He was exalted. He told Pilate, you don't have any authority to kill me. He told us, I lay down my life and I'll take it up again. I'm in charge here. He's exalted above Herod. He's exalted above Caesar. He's exalted above his mother. I say to my beloved Roman Catholic neighbors and friends, he's exalted above every other name. He was mocked, but now he's ruler over the mockers. He was slain, but now he's worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. In a moment... We're going to sing the question, is he worthy? He is. And I hope when you sing it, I hope your souls will really cut loose. He was crucified, but now he's gloriously risen. He was poor, but now he's rich beyond measure. He was despised and rejected, but now every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. In just a few minutes, you'll have the opportunity for your tongue to confess. And when the Father exalts Christ, the result... See, Christ suffers. That gains exaltation. That's going somewhere. That exaltation is to the glory of God the Father. That's where it's going. The Father is glorified because Jesus is exalted, and Jesus is exalted because He suffered the way He did. As the Father exalts Him, Christ's exaltation is universal. Which knee? Which tongue? A name above? All of them. Every name. Every knee goes down. Every tongue goes up. Now, these are the two main aspects of humility that our text requires. There's two of them. One is bowing the knee, bending the knee. That's action. And second is confessing. That's speech, tongue. You're going to say something about Jesus, whether you've said it already or not. You're going to say something about Him. Now, both of these things, the acting and the speaking, must be done from the heart. And they will be done from the heart but they can be performed by two different kinds of hearts. There is a seeing heart that humbly, willingly, earnestly, even eagerly, gladly says, Jesus Christ is Lord. And then there's another kind of heart, a blind heart, that belligerently, reluctantly, rebelliously says, Uncle. We'll clarify this in a minute. Now, how does today's text serve our own humility? Well, our humility corresponds to His Lordship. If every knee will eventually bow, that includes your knees, my knees, we're wise and happy 
to humble ourselves sooner rather than later. So our, our bending the knee, our humility is not in response to something arbitrary or vacuous, but there's a Lord there to whom we bow. So let me try this clarification. Humility doesn't deny its own strength. It just uses it for the good of others and points to someone else. So if I were to sell the worship, if I was to tell the worship, if I was to tell Ben, man, I love those guitar stylings on that last solo. Did you like what he was doing on the guitar there? That was really good. He shouldn't say, no, it wasn't. That would not be humility. He should say, well, thank you. I had good teachers. I have a good instrument. God has enabled me to practice. He's given me good ears. Uh, That's humility. It doesn't deny competence. It serves others in strength sometimes. So who in your family vacuums up the dust bunnies of everyone else? Who in your family cleans the toilet? I saw recently a man in a suit and a tie go into the men's room down here. And before he did any other business, he went over to the towel rack and he got several paper towels and he wiped up the counter in there. It was a mess he had not made. He was serving others. Beautiful humility. I saw yesterday an attorney get on his knees in front of two children and ask them about their schooling, their school experience, how things were going at school. He didn't have to get on his knees, but he did. That was beautiful. I'll bet you could serve someone humbly before you get out of this building today. Use your strength to benefit them. I bet you could do it again in the parking lot. Now look at the verse 11 and observe the word confess. Every tongue will confess. It means acknowledge or affirm or agree or consent. And you can make that confession now, willingly, gladly, savingly, or you can make it eventually, reluctantly, painfully. Those of you who are old enough to remember the old commercial will remember the, I should have had a V8. I could have had a V8. They don't have a V8. They could have. And there's a remorse, there's a regret there in speaking that statement. I could have. Or the, the rich man who's in hell and he says to Lazarus, could you just dip your finger in water and come and help me? Go, go tell my brothers. He's confessing his situation. Truthfully, too late. This confession can be like confessing that your opponent just won the election. And you, you give your speech saying, they won, I didn't win. There will be that kind of confession in the end. He's Lord, I lose. In the end, every tongue will confess Jesus wins. It's like if you've seen any of the 
the kickboxing stuff, which we don't watch at our house, but there are excerpts, and you'll see someone who's in some chokehold or something, and they finally they tap out. They're confessing, it's over. I lose, and it's too late. No more winning, not in that match. It's like crying uncle when you see you're overcome. There will be that kind of confession, as well as the kind of confession that says, my Jesus, I love you. Now, our Philippians text this morning echoes an Old Testament text from Isaiah 41. Listen, see if you can hear the similarity. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, since every tongue will eventually confess... Some people have used this text to try to support an idea called universalism, the idea that all confessions of his lordship to say that Jesus is Lord will save those who make such confessions. But the notion that this Isaiah text, every tongue confess, implies universalism is undone by the very next verse. Let me read the next verse. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. So it's not universalism. Just because every tongue confesses does not follow that every tongue confesses out of glad-hearted submission. When my young children were naughty, I did not require them to say they were sorry because they might not be and I would be enforcing a lie. But I did require them to say I was wrong because even if they didn't believe it, they were telling the truth. They can say it truthfully, even if they say it reluctantly as a concession over this big dad who is standing there, like tapping out in kickboxing. Universal confession is not the same as universal salvation. Yes, every knee will bow to Jesus. Mark this. It is Jesus who said, Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who is able to cast soul and body into hell. There is a hell to be shunned, according to Jesus. He's the same Jesus who said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And maybe more to the point is what Jesus said here in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many devils and do many wonderful works in your name? My, my, aren't we fine boys? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, who call me Lord. Saving faith surrenders in humble obedience, not rebellion, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So you see the relationship between his lordship and our humility? We humbly submit to what? His lordship. We're not saved by simply knowing and believing facts. Demons can do that. We're saved by grace through faith expressed in glad 
humble obedience. So the answer to question number one, you're thinking, my goodness, we've only reached the answer of number one. Hope you brought a sack lunch. <laughs> question was, what is everything for? Everything is for the glory of God through the exaltation, exaltation of Jesus, who's Lord over the whole shooting match. Second question, what is Jesus' name? Well, it's not the name Jesus per se. Yes, it is, but that's not what this text is saying. Not Jesus in and of itself. Verse 11 says, His name is Lord. Christ will eventually and certainly be acclaimed for what He's always been. The one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Listen to Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. John 13, 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Romans 14, 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. What is his name? It's Lord. Question number three, if he's Lord, so what? I mean, what is lordship? Let me first suggest what it's not. It's not just using the word, quote, Lord. That's not, you, could, you could be an actor in a theater play and use the word Lord. That's, that's not it. We already saw that in Matthew 7 where Jesus said, Many will say unto, that, unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, and they're not going to heaven. It's not being... Fasten your seatbelts here. It's not being a Christ follower only. The rich young ruler wanted to follow Jesus, but not if Jesus was going to be Lord over his money. John six sixty six says this, after many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, he said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? They were Christ followers for a while, these people. Following Jesus must not be equated with eternal life unless, by grace, through faith, you persevere to the end on account of his superior value. His lordship is not merely saying yes to Jesus. It includes that. It includes following Jesus. It includes using the word Lord. Those are all, those are all good. They're not sufficient by themselves. A momentary yes to Jesus while continuing to live a lifestyle of unbroken indifference to His Lordship is not bending the knee. So what is His Lordship? Try this. It is His universal authority. And we're accountable to His authority. I recently read through the Gospel of Matthew and found over a hundred things that he exercised authority over. Let me just give you a few of them. A boat. That's not his boat. He said, let's take that boat across the sea. He takes it as though it's his. An angel. He tells an angel what to do. Twelve years of bleeding. John. Tells John what to do. 
blindness. He can stop it. He can cause it. He's Lord over the blind. He's Lord over the devil. He's Lord over his itinerary. He decides when he was going to go, where he was going to go, and when he was going to get there, what he was going to do when he got there. He's Lord over muteness, people's inability to speak. He has authority over fishermen and fish. Oh, how many fishermen wish they had authority over the fish? He had authority over, quote, this is a quote, every disease and affliction. He had authority over the twelve disciples. He had authority over the crowd. We could put an S on that, crowds. He had authority over demons and unclean spirits. He had authority over anxiety. He could pronounce peace, and there was peace. He had authority over leprosy and lepers, storm, winds, waves, dead girl, Matthew, tax collecting. I'm, I'm amazed that he walks up to a guy who's on duty, on his job, working for the IRS, says, follow me. Gets up and goes. Doesn't he have to say, I gotta check with my boss, I gotta, I gotta close down the office, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta put away these receipts. I gotta... Matthew goes because Jesus has authority. And he doesn't ask him, you wanna follow me? It's not what he says. Follow me. Follow me. He has authority over life. The testimony of witnesses. He knows the Father. He has authority over rest, the Sabbath, grain, grain fields, a withered hand, his own tongue. Try that one. You got authority over your own tongue? He has authority over forgiveness, the understanding of parables, secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He has authority over wisdom, loaves, fishes, dismissing the crowds, seating thousands of people on grass. He has authority over the lame, the crippled, walking on water, coins in fish, his death. His resurrection, treasure in heaven, eternal life. He has authority over his own flogging, authority over the money changers in the temple and their tables, authority over a donkey and a colt that are not his, a fig tree. He can decide whether it lives or dies. Authority over angels. The upper room belongs to somebody else. He has authority over Peter's sword, the servant's ear, twelve legions of angels, the clouds. Just to sum it up, what Jesus says at the end of Matthew is, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. There is no authority I don't have. I'm Lord. He's called Lord 747 times in the New Testament. And because of his complete authority, those who trust him for salvation can trust him for everything else. 
everything that would be good for them forever. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that He's God. And as God, He's sovereign. He has universal dominion. He possesses every right to govern. To say in faith that He truly is my Lord is to see Him as attractive, as superior, altogether lovely. To love Him and obey Him. So question number two is, what is His name? Lord. And question number three was, so what? Well, because He's Lord, He has all authority, and I should obey Him. That brings us to question number four. What's the good news in all this? Dearly beloved at Bethlehem this morning, let me state it like this. Here's the good news. That Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, humbled Himself to die on our behalf and to vindicate His righteousness. He thereby became the sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty we deserve for our sin. He rose from the dead to demonstrate with power that He is Lord over all, offering eternal life freely to sinners like me who surrender to Him in humble, repentant faith. Let us hail Him as worthy Lord. I gladly invite you to gladly confess with your hearts and your mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's stand and confess. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.